When Milan and his wife Elena had their first daughter, Josephine, she was diagnosed with spinal muscular atrophy type 1 and passed away after 15 months. When they found out they were pregnant with their second child, Evelyn, they prayed for a healthy baby. Unfortunately, that was not the case. Evelyn tested positive for spinal muscular atrophy type 1. They knew, just like with Josephine, that this would be a serious and life-ending condition. She wouldn't be able to hold her head up, she would struggle to eat, and eventually she wouldn't be able to breathe without a ventilator. Soon after, Evelyn's family found out about a clinical trial going on at a nationwide children's hospital. Little Evelyn was given the gene therapy. Her parents started seeing changes as early as two months after the treatment. She was able to hold her head up, which would not have been possible before, and the development of her movement was starting to show a normal trajectory for a child her age. Today, Evelyn is a healthy, normal child, something that wouldn't have been possible to say previously about a child with spinal muscular atrophy type 1. Now her parents are thinking long-term and planning for college. Hello there, welcome to Genetic Drift, the podcast where we take a deep dive into the world of genetic diseases and try to lift the stigma surrounding them. I'm your co-host Anthony. And I'm Juliet. So what did you think of that story? It was nice to have a story that ended with good news for once. (laughs) I know, I was looking forward to doing this one because I can actually say before the future bit that there is something optimistic. Yay. I mean... Not a fan of stories of babies dying, but I am a fan of stories of babies living. Interesting way of putting that, but yes. (laughs) I can word. I definitely think the stories where a child that is given something unfortunate and gets a miraculous treatment that allows them to live a happy life is a wonderful thing to see. And I recommend that people watch the videos of gene therapy treatments for children with spinal muscular atrophy. So obviously today we're covering spinal muscular atrophy, or as I'm going to call it from now on, SMA. SMA. Okay, so it feels like the name of this tells me what I need to know. The muscles around the spine atrophy and therefore are weak or die? So Basically, yeah, spinal muscular atrophy is a genetic disorder characterized by weakness and wasting, or atrophy, in muscles used for movement. So it's actually all skeletal muscles, not just the spinal muscles, but they have some of the most obvious symptoms. What's a skeletal muscle? So skeletal muscle is any muscle that's used for voluntary movement. So any movement that you make a decision to do involves your skeletal muscles. So moving your hands, arms, legs, um, things like uh, taking deep breaths. So, you know, when you take a deep breath and you pull the diaphragm, or like when you're singing and you contract that, that's a, that's a skeletal muscle for that reason as well. It's a voluntary movement. Okay. So 
Lose muscles. Atrophy. Yes. Why? Well, the reason for that is uh, that they uh, stop getting a uh, nervous signal to them. So they stop getting the message that tells the muscles to contract. And then because different parts of the muscles are not contracting anymore, they start breaking down because the muscles are cost a lot of energy to maintain. So there's a the body has a use it or lose it approach to keeping them. Okay, so I'm going to guess the main symptom is that you can't move? Movement is a big problem, yes. And your symptoms vary based on the type of SMA that you have. Okay, how many types? There are quite a few, but there are four main types of SMA. And they are the biggest distinction between them is actually the onset. So with SMA type 1, you see symptoms within the first six months. SMA type 2, you see symptoms between 7 and 18 months. Type 3, you will see symptoms typically after 18 months of age. And with type 4, you will typically see symptoms in someone in their 20s or older. Oh, that's a sudden jump in age. Yes, yeah, they, they are um, they are comparatively mild symptoms. So with each one, type 1, the symptoms include uh, weak floppy limbs, which people sometimes call floppy baby syndrome. That sounds cute, but I guess it isn't. No, no, this is, a, this is an awful thing for parents to experience at the time. Uh, trouble moving, eating, breathing and swallowing are other symptoms of type 1. And uh, babies are unable to raise their head or sit upright without support. Oh no. Type 2, the symptoms include people are typically able to sit up without help, but not necessarily stand or walk, have weak arms and legs. They'll have uh, shaking, so like tremors in the fingers and hands, which uh, kind of makes sense if, it's a, if your muscles are struggling to keep those uh, limbs held up, they just start shaking. And later, uh, patients can develop problems in their joints such as scoliosis. And this will be because the muscles that support the spine itself are starting to atrophy, hence spinal muscular atrophy, and therefore they can't hold the spine in the right shape, so it starts bending. Huh, okay. With uh, these sort of uh, symptoms, people with type 2 often have uh, weak breathing muscles as well, which means they have difficulty coughing. And having a weak cough, or what's sometimes called an unproductive cough, means that it's a lot harder to clear infections. So people with particularly SMA type 1 and 2 have a lot of trouble clearing chest infections and get more frequent lung infections. Okay, so do both type 1 and 2 patients uh, live? Are they able to survive? Uh, so it does vary, but I think it'd be first be good to actually define what type 3 and 4 are as well. Oh, so many. Keep going. So with type 3, which, if I remind you, just uh, that one kicks in after about 18 months of age, patients are able to stand and walk without help, although might find walking difficult or getting up from a sitting position difficult. Uh, may have balance problems, difficulty running or climbing steps, and a slight shaking in their fingers. So you can see these symptoms are milder than the the previous two types, and walking will gradually get harder over time for someone with type 3. But as you can see, the symptoms are milder. Yeah. And with type 4, again, similar sort of thing, uh, weakness in hands and feet, difficulty walking, shaking and twitching muscles. 
So again, it's it's some of the, the milder symptoms that you might experience in the earlier stages of SMA 1 and 2 that you will see in 3 and 4 being the predominant symptoms. So do you know why they impact patients at different ages? Uh, yes, that's to do with in the genetic section. I'll go into more detail and mention that one. But in simple terms, it's not to do with the mutation that causes the illness, but it's to do with how another gene is able to compensate for that mutation. Okay. So now can you tell me what the outlook for these patients is? Yeah, sure. So for type 3 and 4, you get a usual life expectancy. Yay! Just, you know, see some functional difficulties at times. Type 2 can shorten life expectancy, but most children survive to adulthood. So you can live to be an adult and live for a reasonable time as an adult, but there is a reasonable chance that your life expectancy is shortened. And will many patients also be physically disabled? Perhaps yes. need wheelchairs? Yes, they'll, they'll need uh, mobility aids of some sort. And uh, type 1 is the most tragic of, of the lot which is death typically within the first few years. So a lot of children with SMA type 1 don't make it past their second birthday. Aww. So it's, yeah, it's awful. And uh, the way they go about diagnosing this is most of the time they try to diagnose before pregnancy. So if you have a family history, you might get IVF treatment, in vitro fertilization. And in this situation, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis is an important one. So that's when... The egg is fertilized, and then after the egg has split into a few more cells, they will take one or two of them, check the uh, DNA, make sure that there's no mutation before implanting that fertilized egg into the mother's uterus. Okay, so guaranteeing that the child will not have it. Yes, and it makes sense when you consider how awful a condition this can be, that you'd want to try and prevent it if possible. Otherwise, if the person's already pregnant and they think that there's a risk of uh, SMA, then it's back to good old chorionic villus sampling and amniocentesis. So either the placenta or the amniotic fluid is taken and DNA is analysed from that. Okay. And what, what about if the child is already born? Well, if they're already born, there are two tests that can be done besides observing symptoms. There's one that's called electromyography. And what this involves is putting thin needles into a muscle to detect how well they're working. So what it might be is that if you run a little current and you, and you measure the contraction strength. And oh, because electricity causes muscles to contract? Yes. Oh, that's kind of Frankenstein. A little bit. Think like uh, that scene in The Matrix when, when they're trying to get Neo's muscles to work again. Oh yeah, with all the electrodes. Yes. So it's a little bit like that, but the idea is to get an idea of how well the muscles are working. Uh, another test that can be done is a muscle biopsy. Uh, I know that sounds a bit grim, but it's a really small amount that's taken. So you'd be looking at like the size of a pinhead kind of sample that's just taken from the muscle and then is analysed to see if it's already thinning. Okay. And also, I guess you'll see symptoms quite quickly if it's type 1. Yeah, in type 1 and 2, you'll see symptoms pretty quickly because that's still a stage where you'd be having regular appointments with your doctor to check on the baby's health. Obviously, once someone has been diagnosed with SMA, you've then got to go on to uh, treating it. Now, at the moment, some of the uh, 
treatments that are available include uh, careful feeding methods. So it can be a diet that is uh, helpful for development. So it might be high fats so the child gets enough energy or certain nutrients that are hard to di digest might be supplemented. A feeding tube might be used as well to make sure that the child gets enough calories so that they can maintain what muscle they have. And so that's about uh, muscle maintenance. But I thought that the neurons don't work, so that the muscles don't work at all. So the neurons will um, progressively stop working. So each muscle requires multiple neurons to send signals to different bundles of muscle within the entire tissue. Okay. So if some of those neurons die, the other ones can still fire and cause it to contract. But because you're getting less signals sent and less of the, mu less of the muscle is contracting, the muscles do not contract as strongly. Okay, but they can still work. Yes, yeah, so you can maintain what's still working, is the approach there. So not all of the neurons are not working? Not immediately, no. It'll be progressively the motor neurons, the, i.e. the neurons that send signals to the muscles, will stop working. So you try to maintain as much strength in what's currently working as possible to give a patient as much autonomy as they can have. Okay, so it, especially with, say, type 3, if you have the patient doing lots of strengthening, can they, that, is, that a, is that a way they're treated? It's a way Maybe of managing. boot camp? Well, no, because if it's type 3, they might be a little bit older, to be more like toddler camp, but it's, it's a way of... Uh, I'm thinking about toddlers doing push-ups now, and it's great. It's a way of slowing the onset of symptoms, but it's not like a cure or anything like that. Um, and obviously with the feeding, a lot of that's just to make sure that the child reaches some of their developmental goals, because if the child's having trouble swallowing, for example, that's where a feeding tube can come in ha handy, because that allows the child to have the nutrition that they need when they're incapable of swallowing or chewing properly. Okay, and sorry to kind of pop back to symptoms so when you say it's progressive yes. so does that mean it will keep getting worse their whole life typically yes oh gosh so with that obviously first stage making sure that the child gets enough to eat is important after that uh there'll be muscle strengthening exercises and breathing exercises so again that's maintaining as much strength as there. vaccination to prevent flu and pneumonia Obviously important if you're having weak lungs and you can't clear infections as well is to give someone all the help they can to lessen the effects any infections might have. So they can be quite vulnerable to lots of, especially our normal kind of winter illnesses. Yeah, definitely. Other treatments that are available are uh, offering mobility equipment, which makes sense. So it could be wheelchairs, be crutches, depending on what stage someone is in their uh, condition. Physiotherapy, which obviously does tie into some of the uh, exercises. Some of the uh, treatments specifically for spinal problems include specially made back braces that are, held, that are put in place to support the back and encourage the spine to grow in the correct shape. And in uh, later stages, what might be used is spinal surgery. And this one's going to sound a little bit rough, so bear this in mind. Don't get too squeamish. But the surgery involves straightening the spine by using metal hooks and rods to then fuse the uh, 
pieces of rod and metal in place with the bones so that the spine stays in a fixed position. So you have a metal rod yes. in your back? Possibly multiple rods. This is how we become robots? Maybe. <laughs> it doesn't help with the next one where I say that mechanical ventilation is another form of treatment that's used as well. But obviously, that's, you're thinking like uh, either ventilators or CPAP or something like that, or the iron lung, which is a bit scary. Now, for an actual cool treatment that's in place that's quite encouraging, in 2019, there was actually gene therapy that was approved for this. So gene therapy already exists on the market for uh, spinal muscular atrophy. Oh yeah, usually we only discuss it in the what's coming up section. Yep, so this is quite a good one in that sense. That's why uh, I included that specific story, because I wanted to kind of show an example of what the gene therapy can do to someone's life when they have spinal muscular atrophy. Yeah, because everything else you've listed so far, it hasn't been a cure. It's been managing symptoms. So walk me through. What is it? How does it work? So the treatment is approved by the FDA for treatment of children under 24 months. And what happens is you get an IV infusion of a virus that's carrying a functional version of the mutated gene. And what that will then do, ideally, is infect the motor neurons and insert the functional gene into the motor neurons so that they then produce this working gene and then the neurons will not die. So you kind of do it individually neuron by neuron? No, the idea is that by adding it intravenously you should be able to get multiple neuro motor neurons in one go but you're not necessarily going to be able to get every single one of them in one treatment. Okay, but instead of changing like the bone marrow or something where all cells are produced, you're going straight to the neurons. Yes. That's that's different from other stuff, right? Well, it's it's what a lot of gene therapy does anyway. The the idea is that the virus will target the cells of that you have of interest. Okay. That's really cool. Yeah, that is great. So the only thing is that the outcomes for this have varied from the type of treatment given. So obviously with under 24 months, it's only SMA type 1 and 2 that get given this treatment. However, the life expectancy in some cases is only increased by a few months, whilst other people treated can end up with only mild muscle weakness and a normal life expectancy. So they can basically regain their life. Wow, but it doesn't quite work for everyone yet. No, no, and a lot of treatments. I think people make this assumption that one treatment's going to work for everyone, and that is rarely the case. That's very difficult to achieve. Even with something like gene therapy, it could be that their body doesn't accept the gene that's inserted in them through that virus, or it could be that the immune system does too good a job of clearing the virus in the first place. Okay, so an amazing step, but work left to do. Yes. And because you've been asking about the uh, gene so early, <laughs> do you want to know what, what kind of uh, genetic disorder this is? Yeah. Okay, so SMA, all four types, is autosomal recessive. Okay. Recessive, so you need a copy from both your parents. Correct. Autosomal means it's not sex-linked. Yes. Woo! <laughs> Yes, I will celebrate every time. <laughs> okay, that's fine. So all four 
types of SMA involve mutation of the same gene, and it's a gene that's called the survival motor neuron 1 gene. Survival? That's dramatic. Yeah. So this gene encodes a protein that's responsible for sending a signal to your neurons that basically says, we're good, we should stay around. And it suppresses any signals that your cells might say to say, you know, we're wasting energy or we're infected, we should get rid of this cell. And that way you keep this healthy balance so that the nerves stay in place that you need and you might get rid of some that you no longer are using or that are no longer functional so that your body's not wasting energy on them. Okay. So with the uh, survival motor neuron 1 mutation, or SMN1, 95% of all cases just involve a small deletion of the gene. So just like a few of the nucleotides, so the A, C, Ts, and Gs, are just removed from it. And that changes it enough that the uh, protein that is encoded is not the right shape, or you get an early stop codon, which means that early on in the gene, it has a message that says stop making this, so the mRNA is too short, so you don't actually get a proper protein being made at all. And either way, the end result is that you don't make a functional SMN1 protein. So you're not sending this signal that says protect these motor neurons, these neurons that tell your muscles to move. Okay, so the neurons are still created in the first place, but then they're not maintained? Yes. Okay. So then the neurons die, and then what happens is the muscles are getting no signal, so they don't move. And then because the muscles aren't moving for a long time, the muscles break down because they're wasting energy by maintaining them at the size they are. They're not being used. Now, what distinguishes the different types of spinal muscular atrophy appears to be a second gene. So there is a second survival motor neuron gene called FMN2. And this one can compensate to some degree for SMN1 when it's mutated. And how well it compensates for the loss of SMN1 is broadly related to the severity of the SMA symptoms and how early you get them. So it's a second gene that does kind of the same thing? Yes, just not as well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's like your... Um, your backup or your home guard, you know, they're not your best, but you have them there in case the best are gone. Did you just say the home guard? <laughs> yes. Well, you know, if you've got all the old soldiers rather than the uh, the, special, uh, the special forces or the uh, younger soldiers. <laughs> Think Dad's army. I was about to say, you're going to get Dad's army after you. <laughs> it is. It is like, though... Like it's like the dad's army, you know. They're the backup, and they will do what they can, but they're not. It's not their initial job. Okay, so the severity of the illness is based on how good your backup is. Yes, because they're doing the same thing, just not great. <laughs> yeah, not as well. So yeah, that's that's kind of what how the mutations work, and the illness itself is not particularly common. So. You tend to see SMA of all kinds in one in every 10,000 births. Okay, that's pretty rare. Yeah, and there's no ethnic bias. It seems to be globally that one in 50 people are carriers of the disease. One in 50? Yes. That's, so it, that's a much smaller number than the one in 10,000 births 
Yeah, but it makes sense mathematically. If you've got 1 in 50 chance of uh, one carrier, and then you've got a 1 in 50 chance of another carrier, then the chances of those two carriers meeting each other is 1 in 2,500. And then the chances of them having a child with the illness is 1 in 4, because it's recessive. So then that ends up being 1 in 10,000. Oh, okay. So it makes a lot of sense. It's really interesting that there's no difference in prevalence around the world. That's really different from most of the ones we talk about. Yeah, I'm not sure why that's the case either, to be honest. I couldn't tell you. And is this one where you can have kind of spontaneous mutations and have it without having had a parent with the disease? Uh, not to which I could find. Oh, okay. So you really do have to have parents with a, with that are carriers? Yes. To the best of my knowledge, that is the case, yes. And as with a lot of other things, you know, there are some additional illnesses that are associated with SMA, but the main one tends to be pneumonia and other respiratory illnesses, which can unfortunately be lethal in particularly children with SMA 1 and 2 because of the weaker muscles, meaning that you can't clear the lung infection. I think now's time that we take a break and then we will go into the history of this condition. Great. Welcome back, everyone. Is it history time? Yeah, it's history time. Cool. Tell me all about it. How long have we had SMA? Well, as far as records go, we seem to have records that indicate uh, cases of SMA going as far back as the Sultan Tepe tablets from Assyria. And these tablets are from around about 1,000 or so BC. Ooh, so a written record from that long ago. Yes. And um, there's also the uh, records from the Babylonian text called the Sagig as well, which is around about the same era. Um, same era. And the, an excerpt that I found, obviously this is a translation from someone else because I cannot read Babylonian. Oh, come on, get it together. <laughs> when you get all of this genetics... Then we can work on my Babylonian. So the caption is that it says is, If he continuously lets his neck drop to the left or right, he will die. If his neck continually falls on to the left or right, he will die. If his neck falls when it's turned from left to right, he will die. Ooh, so that sounds kind of like a description of floppy baby syndrome. Yes, and it sounds very much like uh, what I was saying with SMA1, how a child can't hold their head up. So th this one, like, looking at the excerpt, it seems pretty likely that that's a recorded case of uh, spinal muscular atrophy. So, you know, we've had written record, or we seem to have had a written record of it, for at least 3,000 years. Whoa, and it's still a thing. Yes. Can we trace the mutation? You said earlier that there's no real difference in it across ethnic groups. Correct. So 
I looked into it, and there haven't been any attempts made in the literature, so there have been no research groups that have published any attempts to date the mutation for SMN1. Um, however, what I did find in my reading was that SMN1 is a gene that's highly conserved amongst all animal species with a nervous system. Like, very, very highly conserved. What does that mean? So that means that if you go through the entire length of the gene, and you compare it to another animal, they're almost identical. Oh. From that, there is a potential that this disease could originate with a common ancestor of animals with a nervous system, given that our genes are all similar, and there is this potential for mutation. Um, I didn't manage to find any animals with the condition that weren't animal models, and the difficulty with uh, animal models for these conditions is that they not always naturally have those mutations. They can sometimes you can induce the symptoms. So I wasn't sure if those were valid ones. However, if this uh, potential for this mutation originated from a common ancestor of an animal with a nervous system, then neurons evolved around about 525 million years ago. So it's possible that spinal muscular atrophy or the mutations of the SMN1 gene could be up to half a billion years old. That's really cool that the SMN1 gene is the same across loads of different animals. Well, we use the term conserved because obviously they're not identical, but they are so similar. So they do, do we think they do the same thing? Yeah, yeah. When, when they're at like a really high level of conserved, they, they, do, they, they will do the same thing. And they seem to hold the same function amongst all of these animals, amongst many animals that have been observed with this gene. So this is a way that I am like a puppy. Sure. <laughs> sure, let's go with that. So if you think this mutation could be super old, why do we still have it? Especially if it seems to affect life expectancy. Well, this is actually one of these mutations, and you find it a lot with the recessive ones, where there's an example of a heterozygote advantage. Can you remember what that means? Um, having two different copies of the gene gives you an advantage. By two different copies, you mean... I mean not having two of the recessive ones? So just having one copy of the recessive gives you an advantage. Yes? Yes, that is what heterozygote advantage means. I knew it, even if I couldn't explain it. So there is an advantage to having one copy of this SMN1 mutation, it seems, as it's associated with decreased aneuploidy. Now, aneuploidy just means when the sperm or the egg has the wrong number of chromosomes. That's a really bad thing. Yeah, so like Down syndrome, for example, would be caused by, let's say, an egg with aneuploidy, so an egg had an extra chromosome. So the egg had two copies of one of these chromosomes, the sperm had one copy, you bring it in, you get three copies of that chromosome, Down syndrome. So by reducing the chances of aneuploidy, you do reduce the chances of chromosomal genetic disorders. That's really weird. How did they figure out that link? It would have been observing populations looking at their genetics and looking at the uh, the rates of uh, conditions like Down syndrome afterwards, probably. Did anybody figure out why there's that link? 
No, at the moment, uh, it's just known to be an association. We don't know for certain that it's causative, and we don't know how it would cause it at this point. So maybe carrying the recessive gene for SMA can prevent you having aneuploidy. Yes. But maybe not. Yeah, we're not certain, but it, there's a there's a pretty strong association. So for now, it seems like a good enough. It seems like a reasonable assumption as to why this mutation has managed to survive for as long as it has. Another reason why this mutation may have survived for as long as it ha- has is that uh, some families have actually been characterized to have two copies of this mutation, but somehow no symptoms. So for reasons unknown, some people aren't actually affected by the mutation. Oh. Is it because their backup gene is just working so well? It could be, but no one's confirmed one way or the other yet. Oh, that's really strange. So you could have the genes for the condition and just not have any symptoms? Yeah, basically. Strange. Yeah, um, I hope they find out more about that, because that could be really interesting. It could also give an option for gene therapy if there's a particular mutation in the second one that allows it to completely compensate. Hmm. So when did we figure SMA out? So SMA1 was the first condition to be officially characterised, and it was first described by a German scientist called Johann Hoffmann in the late 1800s, and also an Austrian scientist who was named Guido Verdnig. And that's why one of the oldest, older names for this condition was, unsurprisingly, Verdnig-Hoffman disease. As usual. Yep, they're always named after themselves. Uh, so both men had separately noticed several cases of babies developing muscle weakness within the first few months of life, and they also noticed that this condition ran in families, which is where they then made their uh, subsequent hypotheses, which were then proven to be correct. Um, other types of... Uh, SMA were subsequently characterized. However, the SMN1 mutation wasn't characterized as the causative agent until 1995. 1995? Yeah, so it took a little while. It was about 40 years into when we were actually identifying genes successfully. So we've come in in 25 years from only just figuring out which gene it was to figuring out gene therapy to treat it. Yes. That's amazing. Yeah, it's really, really rapid development, which is great. So what's happening in the future on this one? Well, obviously, we've already got some good things coming with uh, the fact that we've already got some gene therapy that works for the young cases, which is good because they're the most severe ones. So now we've got babies that would survive when they normally wouldn't. And I recommend people go on to youtube and watch videos of these treatments because they're quite beautiful videos to see but the uh gene so the uh gene therapy has obviously already made it through the clinical trials the one type has and this has drastically improved the quality of life and has made sma1 a less often life limiting condition obviously some cases are unfortunately not responsive to it and that's where the uh next developments will come into making sure that those groups are able to respond to gene therapy. But there is at least hope now. Yes, which is a good thing to see, really. So how can we destigmatize this condition for people who have it? Well, the first thing we can do is dispel a few myths. So 
SMA has a couple of misconceptions around it, and this can obviously make things a little bit difficult for the patients themselves. So the first myth that would be worth addressing is that people with SMA never walk. Now this depends very heavily on the type and severity of the condition, as I said to you before. You know, some people can walk and then eventually are unable to walk, and some people are always able to walk, especially if they get like type 4 SMA. Okay, so it really varies. Yes, so it's a it's a very inaccurate assumption, but you can kind of see where it comes from. And there's kind of stages in between somebody who is perfectly healthy and somebody who is in a wheelchair. Yeah, it's it's basically people are just seeing black and white and not seeing the in-between. So the second myth is that SMA is muscular dystrophy. Ooh, I definitely had those two conflated in my head. Yeah, a lot of people do. And it makes sense because muscular dystrophy is a weakening and degradation of the muscles. But muscular dystrophy, it happens in the muscles. Where with SMA, it's a lack of signal from the nerves dying that leads to the muscles weakening and wasting. So the mechanism is different, even if a lot of the symptoms look similar. And obviously that can be quite frustrating for an individual with SMA to have their condition always misinterpreted as muscular dystrophy. Okay, but the symptoms are quite similar. Yes, they are quite similar. So I think in a lot of cases, someone would understand why another individual thought that they had muscular dystrophy when they actually had spinal muscular atrophy. But it is worth noting that they are quite separate conditions and they are approached differently. The third myth is that people with SMA are paralysed. But as we discussed earlier, they're not necessarily. They can still move because there are still functioning neurons in many cases. Yeah, so, and also it depends again very heavily on what type of SMA you have and how severe your symptoms are. If you have SMA type 4, it's very possible that in your 30s and 40s you'll just have a tremor in your hands and some muscle weakness. You're not going to be paralyzed at that point. Whilst if you have SMA type 2, there is a possibility that you're going to be paralyzed. So it depends very heavily on what type you have. And therefore, it's not helpful to assume that all people with the condition will be paralyzed. I think it's really interesting to learn about a condition that can really restrict people's mobility. Because I know I don't have much knowledge about what types of things could put somebody in perhaps a wheelchair or needing a walker, and so it's really cool to learn about one. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I think another reason that uh, a lot of people seem to think that people with SMA are paralyzed is because they conflate spinal muscular atrophy with spinal spinal injury. You can kind of see how that's easily mixed up in your head. And obviously, if you break your back, there's a good chance that you will be paralyzed. And the physical symptoms you might see somebody with might look... Similar, yes. And the final myth that would be a good one to address is that people with SMA can't be independent. Oh, but come on, guys. Yeah, it's just, it's a little bit condescending. People will often need some support and may live a little bit differently from you, but that doesn't mean they can't be independent or take care of themselves in lots of ways. You just gotta... Try and find ways to help them. Yeah, definitely. It's not, it's not helpful to, to assume that 
because someone has a specific health condition that they're not going to be independent. Like a lot of people are independent with conditions that lead a lot of other people dependent. It depends. Sorry, it's so heavily reliant on the severity of your symptoms or how far your condition has progressed. Yeah, I think this is also one that makes you remember that there are lots of ways somebody could have their mobility restricted and that it's worth taking really tiny measures in your everyday life to help others. So if you're, you know, in an office and a visitor comes and you need to get them up the stairs, perhaps ask whether they're happy to go up the stairs or if they would like to use the lift, even if you can't see a physical sign. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a good approach to take. So with that, I think we've just uh, suggested reading. Again, uh, I used the same book for the sources of the Babylonian text. So Diagnosis in Assyrian and Babylonian Medicine, Ancient Sources, Translations, and Modern Medical Analyses. Again, thank you to Helena for helping interpret that for us, because God knows that I would not fully be able to. As always, if you have any questions or suggestions or general comments about our show, please get in touch with us at our Twitter, at GeneticDrift1, or our email, GeneticDriftPodcast at gmail.com, and join our Facebook group and get involved in the conversation. Yes, definitely. And uh, we currently have a message going out on Twitter asking for people to share their experiences if they suffer or care for someone suffering with Marfan syndrome, Fragile X syndrome, Tay-Sachs disease, and Duchenne muscular dystrophy because it's obviously a lot better to hear these cases from the people themselves. Um, with that, today's podcast music, as always, is produced by William Kitchener Music, so please check him out. And with that, I'm going to say treat everyone nicely, because you can't see the genes, so don't expect to see the illness. Goodbye. Bye.